The views and opinions expressed during this show do not necessarily reflect like the, the policy, policy or position of any affiliated workplace or employer. The, the views, views and, opinions and opinions of this show, of this show do, do not constitute not. recommendations for therapy. Please contact a licensed SLP for individual consult on your situation. Please listen carefully. What is communication? An essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster another. It's transmitting a thought from one person to another. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. The back and forth between two people. Communication is a lifeline. It's just connection with other people. Connecting people in terms of ideas or thoughts or names. Draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we belong. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. Welcome to Speech Science, episode number 169. I'm Matt Hott, a speech and language pathologist in the state of Ohio, working with middle school students and in home health care for stroke and dementia rehab. Joined from top to bottom, Rachel Archambo, the uh, PTSD SLP located down in the great state of Florida. How are you, Rachel? I don't know anymore. Hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and then in the iced over great state of Texas, Michelle Wintering, our, uh, what do we call you? Our early intervention expert? Our pediatric. Pediatric expert. Pediatric. There we go. Pediatric yep. expert. How are you guys doing? Do you need salt? Uh, we definitely do. It is iced over bad here in Central Texas. Uh, we are, we'll dive in on all that. We're excited for today's show because, uh, Michelle, you interviewed Bob McKinney and his non-traditional route to being an SLP. We're going to be talking about the Jansport revolution and then also a couple changes in IEP law, but before that, we always want to hear from you. So make sure you head over to our website, Speech Science Podcast. Dot com and you can email us speech science podcast at gmail.com y'all i had a very interesting parent meeting this week about a student working on a couple sounds and i am changing his the the person's sister's name but i'm going to keep some of the letters there and let's just say his sister's name was laura and the mom looks at me and goes you know i think i might have named my daughter incorrectly for having a student with L and R issues. And I was like, yeah, just a, just a wee bit. Hey, we've, we've thought about that. Um, cause my daughter's name is Laurel. Yeah. So we just added an extra L for that one too. Hope no one it. has any R issues in your family. L's or R's. Where's our sister? Whoa, whoa. Well, that's why her nickname became Lolo pretty oh, quick. I love it. I love it. Hey. Her older brother called her that from day one. Speaking of children on disabilities, my daughter is gearing up for her MFE three-year ETR for the first time. And we got the brand new cochlear. The, uh, I think it's the N8 came in finally. Cool. And this one has Bluetooth. Ooh. Yes. So you connect it to your phone? Yes. So actually, it's really kind of cool because like a lot of the hearing aids have this option. And I've mm -hmm. been training a lot of my patients on this because I found out through my daughter where you can connect your iPhone to like their hearing aids. And then like the wife sits and talks on her phone I've and the husband that. hears it. It's like I've yeah. had so many husbands. They're like, 
I can finally hear my wife again. And the wife is like, I'm not yelling anymore. And I'm like, we did it. But... I had an adult patient before <laughs> whose wife, uh, just to tease, like mess with him because they had yes. a real joking relationship, um, uh, changed her ringtone. Oh, no. His, his... <laughs> hearing aids were connected to the phone but only he could hear it no one else around him right but she changed <laughs> it to something ridiculous and so when she would ring his phone it would play this like crazy song just for him <laughs> that's terrible and awesome at the same time i love it um but yeah no evidently this it's called the nucleus 8 i think it can actually connect bluetooth wise so that way it's got the same idea that she could eventually connect a phone to it because i guess we'll have the same technology now for the next 10 years or 15 years till they update to the nucleus nine mm -hmm. smaller good. smarter better connected that's what their website says uh we got her activated like a week if we got her activated a week earlier we wouldn't have gotten the free upgrade Ooh. yes <laughs> well so. i guess was that intentional timing or we didn't know it was coming out Okay. Well, we knew it was coming out, but it was going through testing phases. Mm -hmm. And then like they announced and they're like, Hey, anyone on this arbitrary date or after that was, uh, that was uh, activated, you get a free nucleus eight. And if you're not, you, you owe us a lot of money. So that's been the exciting week in our families. Well, I hope activation and her adjusting to it has gone well. So. It is going well. Um, something I didn't know, and I'm sure some of our families with disabilities out there know, and Michelle, you might have known this from working at the School for the, the Deaf and the Blind. One of the things that we have to keep an eye on as they continue to change the activation frequencies uh, is face twitching because it can activate the like wrong facial nerve because mm -hmm. it's, yeah, Rachel, your face is about like what my face was like. And uh, it's happened a couple of times where like, it's almost kind of like an involuntary twitch and then we have to turn it down or change a channel on her mm -hmm. device. Yeah, it can, it can affect that. I I've known a couple of people in particular. Yes. With that. So, uh, that was something I was not prepared for, but Hey, she can hear me now. So it's all good there. Nice. Rachel, how has your week been? I don't know if you want to answer to that question. Oh, no. <laughs> no. So I was at, uh, with my new job, I go to different schools every Wednesday with my coworkers. And during the week, I'm at different schools. You wouldn't believe how many times I pick a random school out of the like 300 schools that are in my area every single time I'm That's there. That's a crazy when it, amount, by the way. I know. When a drill happens, every single time a fire drill <laughs> happens, which is like my one trigger. And like, was oh, it really? It, it it's it's it makes me lose focus and like when you're at an unfamiliar school you don't know what the procedures are so today's like really threw me off had a major headache i came home and i was like i'm done i i'm not doing <laughs> this anymore but no i'm happy it's wednesday i'm looking forward to the weekend my mom's birthday is tomorrow so i'm gonna happy celebrate with her Oh, she'll be so happy to hear that. And um, yeah, we're going to go out to dinner and spend some time together. I love your family, Rachel. They just Thanks. all they listen love to you. the podcast. They do. They do. They're like an extension. We love them. They are. Number one fans. Hey, hey. Even before you were on it, they, yeah. I, they would listen to us. And I love that. Yeah. That's because we put their little baby girl on the air once. 
a like few, twice. yeah, and then we yeah. kept having her back because she fit right in. So yeah, and now like a stray cat, she won't leave. <laughs> Speaking of, we have a stray cat that is just kind of hanging <laughs> on our back porch right now. Speaking of an actual stray cat, this Michelle, one. Michelle, how's leave. your week been? That is a wonderful transition. <laughs> um, yeah, we which we I I've been hearing this cat on and off even. Um, I know I shared my husband and came back from a recent deployment, even during his deployment and my cat would be freaking out on the inside. And so I would see this black and white blur go by, <laughs> but, um, but now it's been so cold out and stuff. I've left this cat food on the back porch. Cause I just Aww. feel for him. Um, he's not one that will uh, like come up to me though. You now have I've an outdoor cat gone to check on him. So he just comes around every once in a while. He Aww. also is a bobtail, a short little tail cat, Ooh. which is what my cat is interesting enough um but yeah my week's been pretty good my uh my four and a half year old after seven weeks got his cast Yay. off his leg um we hopefully will be starting some physical therapy for him soon he's still he's only two days off of it out of the cast so he's still preferring to crawl and scoot around the house right now because it's been in that position for so long um and even when he's walking, he's not really putting much weight on that leg. So we've got some, uh, some stretching and muscle, you know, well, he practice PT. for him. Yeah, we're hoping to get him in with physical therapy hopefully soon. But right now, everything's shut down in Texas, so I haven't been able to <laughs> get that scheduled. <laughs> At least in Central Texas, with all the ice. Well, I am glad that he is cast free. That is awesome. Mm-hmm. And his last day, uh, last weekend in the cast, he got to take an Amtrak train ride with his dad, which he's been asking to do. So we, we booked a short train ride to a city only an hour or so drive away. And he and his dad took the train and then I picked them up on the other end. (laughs) So (laughs) cute. Yeah. Yeah. Well worth it. If you have a train loving kid, I want to do one of those like, uh, um, Oh, the polar express versions. We did a Thomas the tank one and my kids liked it, but now I want to do a longer one. I've been trying to find a good Polar Express one, but I've been sort of blown away by some of the prices yeah, of them. Right? You know, the Amtrak yeah. tickets were, for both of them, $22 or something versus um, the whole experience. I know they would love the Polar Express, but maybe because of the price, I'm trying to wait. My kids are two and four, so I'm trying to wait a little bit yeah. for, for the experience. Yeah, like when it comes to that kind of stuff, like, you either want to spend the money because it's a memory for you or wait till they're older so that they can at least enjoy it and remember it for more than a day and a half. Yeah. The, the polar express in December in Colorado Springs, I didn't have kids when I lived there, but it goes up Pike's peak up the mountain. It's the tramway, See, ride that would up be the cool. mountain, which is pretty awesome. And uh, always sp- guaranteed to be snowy that time of year. I spent over $200 at Savvy's workshop when my nine-year-old was six and a half or seven to build a lightsaber in Disney World. And he doesn't remember it at all. He's like, <laughs> he's like, who built the lightsaber, Dad? I'm like, you, you built the lightsaber and I cried behind you. And he's oh, like, no, I don't remember you were hoping. He's like, for. Yeah, he's like, I don't remember that. And I'm like showing him pictures and he's like, hmm. Ah, uh, I mean, I kind of remember being there, and I'm like, oh, you're just saying that. <laughs> yeah, it's a core memory for you, man. Exactly. There you go. So, uh, I have a stray cat story. Now that you reminded me of that, uh, I had a patient, and everyone thought 
they were losing their mind because they complained about hearing a cat. And every time the nursing and staff came into the room, they could not find a cat. And then I'm in there doing an eval because they think this poor person is losing their mind. And uh, I start to hear the cat and uh, I open the blind. And that is like a giant cat just sitting on the windowsill that had climbed to the top of a three-story nursing home and was just running rampant on the roof. Was it stuck there? Uh, no, it lived on the roof. It just would come to the windows <laughs> trying to get food because some of the folks would just put food in the window. Oh, and this, like, this person was the only resident. one that had like enough cognition to be like, hey, there's a cat outside. And they're like, and no, there's not. nobody believes them. So. Terrible. If you have a stray cat story, email us, <laughs> speech science podcast at gmail.com. Also Take get a hold of turn. us. <laughs> get a hold of us on the Discord or the Discord's been kind of quiet this week. Uh, but we'll we'll spark that back up. Also, our website, speech science podcast.com. All right. When somebody does something awesome, that is where we call it the speech science shout out. And this week it goes to Dr. Emeritus Bruce Porch at the age of 95, still out there doing uh, research. And I guess I didn't realize this. Dr. Emeritus. Wow. Uh, it's yeah. all, he's the guy that created the Porch Index of Communicative Ability, the, the PICA <laughs> scale. Yeah, the PICA, there PICA. Yeah. And he's 95 years young, as the article says. Still doing research. I believe he's doing new research on stuttering. Is that what it was? Yes. Therapy sessions with stutterers. He's tested his model and tried his treatment approach with new patients. So that's going to be coming out of UNM soon. So uh, I, I love the fact that he's doing it at 95. But Michelle, we were talking about it off air. I don't know if I want to be doing work at 95. If it is, so, I hope that if I am working at not one, I hope I'm alive at 95, but if right. I am, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> I hope I am well enough to be doing something that I love. And if that's work, then that's I hope I'm doing it because I enjoy it. Not because I have to do it. I want to get him on air. Well, it's got his email. I will, uh, I'll send him an email. That'd be nice. Well. That would be yeah. great. So if you have somebody doing something awesome that you think needs to be recognized, like Dr. Porch, Email us and then put in the hashtag, or I, I'm sorry, not in the hashtag, put in the subject line, speech science shout out. On the flip side, when people are doing something wrong or questionable, or you just have questions, that is the speech science due process where whoever's on the air will discuss it. And Rachel and Michelle and I get this one this week. Uh, how do we handle families or families of patients or caregivers sending us research from google or asking if they can just use an app instead of paying for our services what do you guys think there might be two different ways that i would go about it for the apps it's a little bit different from the apps i'm i would try to let them know that a speech pathologist in person has training on this and um it it's more beneficial. I hope that there's research to support that. I'm sure there is. Um, and not just my opinion, but um, we already have so much information out there about apps and everything. And I think, um, or screen time for, for children in general, that um, I think sometimes when parents hear that, oh, it's educational, it's for speech, they're like, this, this works. 
um, this is fine. And it's, I don't know if it's as helpful as having a live person. Um, for the other That's fair. Uh, part of that, when they bring me research, I think that's when I would tread a bit more carefully because I would try to validate from this trauma-informed brain. I would try to evaluate um, and validate their emotions. Like, thank you so much for, for bringing me this research. I will definitely read through it, um, actually read through it, and then try to have discussions with them. We're, we're collaborating as team members, right? So I, I hear all the time when, when teachers, SLPs, whoever, say that oh a family is not involved in the the decisions or they're not involved in in their child's therapy or anything like that when they bring you articles i would say that they are trying to be involved in it and i think that's a positive thing to look Ooh, at i love that idea thank you so i would i would thank them for putting in research or looking through things and bringing it to my attention and then have a discussion with them about look, so I've, I've looked through this research and you could say this has been disproven or whatever. And say, from my professional opinion, here are some other articles that are, you know, more statistically sound, they're peer reviewed, they're this, this, this. Um, but it's overall, I think a positive thing that they are bringing you some sort of thing to help you with your therapy. Now, and Rachel, I think my first thought when you said someone's bringing in an article was, oh, I can work with that, right? Mm -hmm. That I'm going to, similar to what Rachel said, I'm going to say, Ooh, okay. You, you want to be reading articles. You yeah. want to be figuring this out and you're doing a deep dive on this. Then how can I support that? And maybe this is a great opportunity if they're not pulling the best sources to direct them like, Oh, Hey, I love that you're researching this. Can I just like Rachel said, can I send you a couple things to look at too? And can I direct you to a couple different websites mm -hmm. or, you know, resources that we know are sound when it comes to our practice. Yep. And, um, and then for the apps part, I'm curious if, if they're asking about apps, are they thinking, talk to them about what they're using it for. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, last year, the informed SLP, you can find other information, but the informed SLP, I noted a really nice summary of, um, screen time mm -hmm. and how, yes, there's the recommendations for a limited number of hours, minutes per day of screen time, but they do separate out that from being like the American Academy of Pediatrics separates that from like FaceTime with family members. Or, right. Um, Miss Rachel. Or, <laughs> yes. Right. But, um, but that it's, it really is that quality over quantity piece that it's less of a concern how much they're watching. If that quality piece is there, is it just to be a babysitter, like to be a, mm -hmm. you know, distraction for the kid, or are they getting some really good content as well that can support their speech and language, not provide it. Right. And who built that app? Is it an app designed by speech pathologists? So it was any, uh, was a speech pathologist considered in the development of the app? Like we don't know mm -hmm. who's behind these apps. So the apps I'm a bit more skeptical about, but it's all about having conversations with the parents for sure. And including them as part of the team, like, Hey, instead of this app, maybe I would give this work that you can do at home with, with your child. Like that yeah. would be and if you my get suggestion. To know, right. Right. And if you get to know that family, you might realize they need it because dad works from home on yep. these days and, they have to have something and he's looking for what can I give him that is a better quality Yep. during this time that he, I need him to have 
uh, focused attention other than me because right. I'm working from home for whatever. I don't know. I'm giving an example because I feel like we need to have those conversations. I love our, where both of families. you guys went with this. This is why I appreciate you guys because the way I read the question was I thought the parent was being cheap and trying to replace therapy. And oh I love God, that you guys went in a different direction. So uh, I'm not going to give my opinion at all because Good. I Shush. was... <laughs> <laughs> We'll start with no, the app does not replace the speech pathologist. <laughs> right. But if you're trying to support what we're doing with some app use, well, then let's direct you to some direct you to some higher quality ones. Right. This is why and, I appreciate you guys. And we have to remember the accessibility part of it, mm -hmm. that some people might not be able to afford speech with a therapist with the, the intensity that we suggest and everything. So they might be looking for alternatives with great intentions and we shouldn't shame parents for that. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm this is me just thinking now, but maybe this is a family who, who thinks their kid might do better with that technology mm -hmm. piece, then maybe look at an option like teletherapy for them and see Ooh, if there you go. True. If that would be a benefit in some way for that family. Good point. You guys are much better people than I am. And I appreciate <laughs> that. If you guys have a due process, email us speech science podcast at gmail.com. All right, so uh, going from apps to AI, last week we talked briefly about ChatGPT. And, we talked uh, in depth about We talked Chat in GPT. depth about ChatGPT and uh, artificial intelligence. <laughs> and I asked the ChatGPT to give me a segue based off of the article where it says, surprisingly, teachers are not buying into the ChatGPT. And ChatGPT says, while ChatGPT has proven to be a valuable tool for answering questions and generating text, teachers may not appreciate its use in the school setting. It may be due to a number of reasons. Firstly, teachers may be concerned about the accuracy and reliability. Uh, they may feel that using ChatGPT undermines the value of critical thinking and independent learning. And finally, there may be some privacy and ethical considerations as well, which coincidentally summarizes the article that I was going to bring up from USA Today about <laughs> teachers not wanting to use ChatGPT in their classrooms. Have you guys messed with it at all during therapy? I'm not during therapy, no. No, I I haven't been on since we discussed it. But yesterday I was in my office and uh, another team of speech pathologists was, was there and they were discussing it. And uh, they were talking about how, oh, when they looked it up, the website was down. Yes, and it was, there was down like, last week. Yeah, there was a disclaimer on it, which was um, interesting. But they were talking about using it for writing recommendation letters. I was like, oh, that would be nice. Like working in a high school <laughs> that all these kids are like, you know, I do basketball and I do debate and I do this. And what's your name? And like plugging <laughs> all those things in would make a really nice, you know, template that you can work off of and add. Um, so I, I can see some benefit. And I'm sure so can students that they're like, I'm going to write a paper in Shakespeare language and you know i am sharing my screen with rachel and michelle right now but i used it with my pragmatic groups and these are the questions my one pragmatic group uh came up with write a complex greeting to my least favorite teacher and chat gpt says uh <laughs> not gonna do that then it said write a greeting to someone who is not my friend and it says hello name it is nice to nice to make your acquaintance then my kids wanted to know the winning lotto numbers. Then they asked it to write their research paper that's due next week. And it did. Oh my <laughs> gosh. And then it said, they asked, what is a good way to ask someone about their week? And 
chat GPT says, how was your week? Anything interesting happen? Uh, how do you ask a question without insulting someone? Uh, and they give you that. And then uh, my kid said he wanted to know, how do you ask someone about their disability? And it gave him some Aww. decent answers. Can Look, you it tell says me use more? person first language. Yes. That's interesting. Uh, then the one kid wanted to know, how I do you give a compliment to a girlfriend? For... It is, it is. Yeah. How do you how do you give a compliment to a girlfriend? Aww. He doesn't have a girlfriend. Uh, how do you tell someone they're being mean? These are all the questions that my kid. That's so really then I was cool. making, then I was showing my kids the podcast stuff. So I like now, that. Hi, on the research paper, I was curious: are the citations legitimate? I haven't looked into it when we've uh, done so some I asked my history teacher across the hall, and he noticed he recognized some of the the titles, citations. So. <laughs> I didn't I wonder, know if it was just generated or if they were really citations. I wonder if I could give it like a research article and say cite in APA or something. That would be so helpful. <laughs> yes, the the formatting would yes. be really helpful. Yes. So one of the research, one of the links that it does is a six volume work <laughs> published from 1776 to 1790. So. Say that again? The one of the links that it did, one of the references, oh, uh, the references is, okay. is a six volume work published almost 200 or 300 oh, years wow. ago. So, huh, right. So, if you're using ChatGPT, let us know. See, I like doing these weird things in therapy because I think it helps the kids connect what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. I think that was great usage in a setting, especially like for a pragmatic group or something, or just knowing what questions they would ask, you know, and you can right. have open discussions about what the answers are. And, and I, I think it's a very cool thing. And teaching the kids how to cheat. Mm -hmm. Not cheating. Well, also maybe directing them to some original sources. If they uh, that's have a good to point. Good follow point. up because I, I'm waiting for a kid to turn in copy and paste where it says at the bottom, like this should not be turned in. <laughs> as final Actually, So I was paper. talking to a teacher about that. And he said that uh, with the way they use Google docs now, the teachers know how long it takes a student to type. Oh, so, so if they, if they if go from nothing minutes, yeah. to like 30 seconds, they have everything pasted in there. They know they got it from somewhere else. Now, the only question would be if they typed it in Word or somewhere else exactly. and copied right. it over. But I think you would have some proof of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. So on the, I don't even have a, ter I don't even have a terrible transition for this one. Jansport is launching highly adaptive bags and backpacks range for their mobility impaired. Now, I was the 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 silly one today where I said I didn't know what the difference was. And Michelle, what is the big difference? Um, I was trying to look through the Jansport website to kind of see, but um, what I think was really neat is that when they released this line. They, they did it well. They partnered with a disability advocacy group called Disability In and actually trialed products and asked people with disabilities what would be helpful for them. And so they mentioned in this article, if you look at the Forbes article, that, um, of course, you could take a regular backpack and toss it over the you know, a walker or right. a wheelchair. And I mean, I've done that with my son. He's had a wheelchair for how many weeks now, right? With his broken leg, mm -hmm. but, um, ha they have ones that have a whole lot more 
options to kind of customize it, that you have extra clips that are already on there. If you don't need them, you can tuck them in if they're not needed, has dual side grab handles. If there's people who have one side weakness or, um, you know, inability to use one arm or leg and also options for walkers versus um, wheelchairs versus other things that you might need to hook it to. So the idea is, is to make it just much more accessible. And I love it because Jansport is a name that's been around forever. And it's, it doesn't have to be, I don't, it can be a name brand that other kids at school have. Yes. That is, that, that's the thing that working in the middle school, high school with, with students with disabilities is that like, it, it feels weird to say it, but like we try to make our kids look as typical or as average or as normal as possible. And by just having a name brand backpack that fits correctly on the back of a wheelchair, changes the game instead of having off-brand or sometimes it'll baggle read like medical bag medical ba 370 yeah. and it's like that's mm -hmm. that's so, not embarrassing i mean i don't want to say it's embarrassing but it causes the student to look different mm -hmm. and they don't and, and, and not give in them their the own way just because they, they have to yeah and that they don't have to stand out because of that mm -hmm. they can stand out if they want to stand out exactly by something they pick so I love this kind of stuff. And also for adults. I mean, Jansport is something yes. that any age can use. So I feel like having that for um, adults with disabilities too can make that accessibility. And I'm thinking about for work, like my coworker who was in a wheelchair, how nice it would have been for her to have easier access to the backpack, um, to be able to unhook it easier, switch it around, that kind of thing. Yeah. Growing up, what was your guys' backpack? We all I had, had one. What was, I what was had yours? a Jansport. I had a Jansport. Jansport. I had a few of them like every year I would go. And I remember how big they were like in middle school, like you had the biggest one. And then I remember in high school going backpack shopping. I was like, mom, I want the little one. Like <laughs> <laughs> just, just one pocket. Okay. Like, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. They just got increasingly smaller, but um, I think mine in high school was Jansport too. I had the same East Pack backpack from and like East Pack, yes. I yeah. had a, I had the same East Pack from sixth grade through grad school and up to about four or five years ago when my intern, extern, and my wife got together and Gosh. got me a new Jansport <laughs> one, and then my East Pack has been gone forever since then. No. Mm -hmm. Were you sad so, to let it go? Yeah. <laughs> Got yes i was it had all the stains and the rips from no. 20 years of use Rachel, no. and my my intern lauren and my wife both agreed that uh it was embarrassing for me to take that bag into people's homes because it was my therapy bag at that point now mm -mm. and they said that it was not becoming of a therapist yeah i agree when you've done home health, Matt, do you have to do all the contact? This was long before COVID when I was doing home health and I had to do pretty intense contact precautions with yeah, all so I have of putting to, down a barrier mm -hmm. to put my bag down to do. I have to have a clean that. pocket and a dirty pocket. I have mm -hmm. to yep. uh, have the protective barrier. When I put my bag down, I have to sit on hard furniture. I can't sit on like the soft furniture. Um, I get around that because I actually have my own stool that I carry in. Oh, okay. So then I yeah. can actually just clean the bottom of the stool. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't have to worry about the part I sit on because it's just me. Just you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. And it helps because then you're carrying your own stool in. And like when you go into somebody's house and you don't want to sit on their couch, you'd be like, ah, oh, look, I have my own chair so I can sit closer to you. Also, you'll realize this in home health care. Uh, no one's furniture is set up for therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, They'll sit in their <laughs> chair and then your option is uncomfortable hassock or the chair 23 feet away or drag a dining room kitchen chair in across I like their the floor. Bring a stool idea. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if anyone else listening. And I used to health. hook it. I used to hook it up to my East Pack because oh. there were straps on the East Pack to hook up the stool. Well, check but out not the Jansports that have extra straps now, Matt. I like how <laughs> but you I that like back. the bringing the stool. I was going to add real quick, Matt, that... Um, uh, the, when I was, uh, an SLP I worked with in home health, um, who had been doing it a lot longer than me suggested a diaper bag. And I did not have kids Ooh, as yeah. my, my in-home therapy bag for two reasons. One, totally wipeable. Every mm-hmm. the inside and outside of it is totally wiped, can be wiped down. And they often come with the plastic changing pad which could be used as your barrier oh that's a good idea a little tip for anyone in home health if you need a bag go pick up a diaper bag yeah my agency actually just bought us some new stuff so actually i just retired my jansport and now i'm using a nurse's bag really i don't know how else to describe it it's got the pockets that i need so there you go. Because my East Pack had everything i needed and my new jansport did not (laughs) lauren and kim He's still disappointed. I don't know. Let it go. If I want to, if I want to start a fight with my wife, I could just ask her where my East Pack backpack is. <laughs> just we'll sing. We'll have Anna and Elsa sing you. Oh, Let it man. go. Let us know about what your backpack of choices or how this could affect your students. Uh, speech science podcast at gmail dot com. You do one hundred and sixty nine episodes, and it becomes more real. I remember when we did the first few episodes, I would try to be like perfect on these transitions and do it just like the radio show. And now I feel like you listening at home that we're all family. So I can be honest, I don't have a good transition for this, but um, they are trying to do a bill in Maine to extend special education to the age of 20 of 20. And when we were talking off air, I thought, Oh, Michelle, did I read it wrong? The 20 or 23? 20, I thought it was, yeah, most of them it's up to 21 already, right? Well, no, not in Maine. What is it now in Maine? I'm pulling it back up. Hang on. My article went kablooey and now it's asking me to pay for it. Uh, No. Okay. So they're trying to change it from 20 to 22. Ah, okay. In Ohio, I thought it was 23 in Ohio. Ohio is the age of 22 as well. So a student can stay into special ed until the day they turn 22. I, most states, I believe, are 21 or 22, right? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, I believe so, yes. I think so. And I was trying to look up Florida's laws, and I had heard it's 21. So from what I saw online, it was like, you can stay till you're 21. But I have heard that it's, you could be 22. It's just where your birthday falls in, like, the school year. So you could technically, if you turn 22 that next school year, I'm not sure. But Mm -hmm. from what it says online, it's 21. So I think most states are 2021. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe in Texas, I was looking it up being that I've only lived here for a couple of years, um, that depending when what calendar month they turn 22, they could have services through age 22. And so here's where it, it starts to get kind of wonky for me. And we talk about it in special education. We call it aging out. I feel like it aging out shouldn't depend on what state you live in. I agree. You know, I don't believe that just because you live in Florida or uh, Michigan, you can stay in until you're 26. But if you're in Maine, you're in 20. In Ohio, you're 22. Uh, or like in Florida, like Rachel, like you were saying, if they turn 22 during the school year, they can stay in. But in Ohio, the day they turn 22, they are asked to leave the school. So it could be September 3rd or yeah. June 12th. Mm-hmm. It's it's so absurd mm-hmm. to me. I do wish it was more uniform like the, because what is the age now with insurance that you can stay on your parents' insurance until 26, right? Mm-hmm. But that's every state. So yes, I do so wish there could be something that... I think this age thing comes from IDEA mm-hmm. that it's, I'm reading an article right now that Maine, um, an appeals court found Rhode Island had violated the federal IDEA act uh, by failing to offer special ed services to disabled students beyond their 21st birthday. So I wonder okay. if now like schools are coming down to align with that act or with idea mm-hmm. yes so maybe IDEA that's the says federal at least 21 right uh, right so maybe maine was behind in this and um it says for some young people with disabilities the option to receive special education services up to age 22 will make the difference in their ability to successfully prepare for adulthood yeah and i i worked with well before i became a speech pathologist i worked with Goodwill Industries with a transition program for high school students. So 18 to mm-hmm. our target range was 18 to 25. We had people older than that too, but um, people who needed a little more support before entering the workforce. And we kind of helped through that program, um, helped them and their families figure out if they were independent employment people, if they needed supported employment or um, what, what was kind of a best fit. Um, and then in Colorado, I also worked for a, not worked, but I worked with, students through the school I worked at in their transition program from 18 to the age out at 21, 22. And um, I feel like not everywhere has those transition programs or you mm-hmm. really have to seek them out. And I know that's the point of having that discussion starting when kids are young about what the transition plan is at IEP meetings. But um, but those those years are critical for mm-hmm. setting people up rather than just setting them up for success, not just dropping them off of the supports. So I found a website that lists uh, ages for children with disabilities. And, and Michelle, what you were hitting on is like the lack of of support for, for these young adults and, and what happens after the school year. Uh, the earliest age I can find is in Montana. Uh, children are able to be served from the ages of 3 to 18. And then after they turn 18, they are no longer eligible for special education in the school system. Uh, Michigan is from six months till the day they turn 26. Um, And then most of these other states are three to 21, uh, a couple outliers at the age of 20, and then Florida and a couple others as well have uh, 
22 as long as the birthday happens during the school year. So it's interesting because if if we're going off IDEA <laughs> and that was enacted in 1975, that states that ages 3 to 22, I can imagine that all these states are getting lawsuits saying, mm -hmm. well, you're violating IDEA. And that's where they're making these changes now, which is what I think happened with Maine specifically is you, why aren't you offering this additional year? Why aren't you adding this additional two years? So um, I, I see that a whole bunch of different states have different ages, but whether or not they violate IDEA, IDEA is another story. Yeah, Hawaii is until uh, they turn 19. 19. Mm-hmm. Which, it's, it's weird because, like, all it takes is to be entered into the school year. When you're looking at some of these states that have 19 and 18, you're, you're talking about a kid that maybe entered school a year late or repeated one, mm -hmm. maybe two grades. Right. And all of a sudden they're, they're being kicked out of school because they've aged out. Right. I don't know if I, how I feel about Michigan and being into age 25 until the day they turn 26. But again, like where you live in the country shouldn't determine the services that you're provided. Right. And I know even like it does. I, know I mean, it. where you live in a city determines the education. You For get. sure. Exactly. So we'll keep an eye on that. And, and that has now changed my opinion as well, or not changed my opinion, but like, I didn't realize it drastically changed that much state to state. Mm -hmm, me neither. So we want to hear from you. Are you in one of these states like Hawaii where Children are only served to the age of 19. How does that work? I would love to talk to you about that. SpeechSciencePodcast.com, SpeechSciencePodcast at gmail.com. Michelle, you and I were non-traditional students. Rachel, are you a traditional student? I am a traditional student. Okay, I am so the most normal. traditional. You're a normie. The most, the most you're a normie. Um, she went straight through undergrad yeah. to grad school, right? I did. Mm -hmm. Michelle, you and I are what we would consider non-traditional students. We uh, got our undergrads, went out into the world, realized that we made a terrible mistake, and then went back to grad school to join into this field. And in tonight's interview, or in today's interview, you got to sit down and talk to Bob McKinney in his non-traditional way into the SLP world, right? I did. So you'll get to hear from Bob uh, with a two-part interview. So part one, I had the chance to sit down and talk with Bob McKinney a bit about himself just as an SLP and his unique path. Because I know while Matt and I were the non-traditional and worked for a couple years in another setting, he worked for 26 years <laughs> as oh. a... Um, <laughs> so his was a total career change. Um, Bob, I realized I made field. a mistake one year later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I wouldn't say so much of a mistake because his other field was ESL. So English as a second language okay. teacher and, um, and that connects in. So this part of the interview is really about him and his, um, his journey and um, becoming an SLP. Um, he also speaks six different languages. So he Ooh. has a wide breadth of experience with living in different countries and, um, of course, as an ESL teacher, he lives in California. He's a full-time school-based high school SLP. Uh, Matt can relate to working with high schoolers. Um, but the other interest area 
of his as well as research area and he he has continuing education courses you can take on accent modification um and so you'll hear more from him in the interview but uh the second part interview so on our next episode we'll focus on a brief overview of accent modification so be sure to listen in for that too The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me, Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash our stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Welcome to the Speech Science Podcast, where I have the great opportunity to introduce you today to uh, Robert Bob McKinney. And I first connected with him before the holidays in the fall because I hopped on to speechpathology.com and we have no sponsorship from them, but if they want to, feel free to send them our way. But uh, doing some continuing education, just like many of us at the end of the year, and he has a course on there on accent modification. So I shot him an email afterwards and here we are with him on the podcast because I thought that it was just a great synopsis in a couple hour time period um, of an area of our profession that not many people um, know in depth about. And so what I would love to do is have Bob introduce himself and um he is a man of many hats. I know that you <laughs> work a couple of different jobs and uh, had an interesting um, route into the field of speech pathology. So if you can introduce us to you and yeah. tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. This is so great. And I guess I would start by saying that um, that I wrote a book on accent modification. That's really why I'm here. But also because of the book coming out, I've been able to meet so many people like you, and that's just been the best benefit of the whole thing. So I know you sent me an email and right away we were talking, we set up a Zoom and here we are now. So I'm really appreciative of this. I think it's a great opportunity to connect with your listeners. And I do have a couple of different jobs that I do. I'm a career change. So I know we were planning to talk about that a little bit, mm -hmm. but I had a 26 year career as an ESL teacher around the world. And I've lived in a couple of different countries and speak some different languages. And then I switched over to being an SLP. And I love that. I'm in an all secondary setting. I'm a full-time school-based SLP in a high school district. Mm -hmm. So, And then I supervise at SDSU. Yeah, go ahead. Yes. So full-time in a high school and you're in California, correct? That's right. San Diego, yes, California. So San Diego, California, um, full-time school SLP, but also yes. um, not just the school job. What else are you doing there? And you mentioned the university where you teach. Yeah, for now, for a while, I was doing a little ESL too in the evenings out at UCSD, but I, I gave that up a couple of years ago. But I did get called in to supervise at San Diego State University in the clinic. And that's where we started also or restarted an accent program that had been created in the 1990s. And I also got called in to teach phonetics to undergrads, which I absolutely love. It's one of my favorite things to do. And then that led to teaching 
leveling courses to for grad students or p- potential grad students, people who had other backgrounds and wanted to get those electives set up. So I teach phonetics online for what we call our SLP essentials program. I know that definitely hits uh, a piece of my speech pathology history because I took a couple years off before I applied to graduate schools and had to do those living courses. So I took a phonetics course online. um, And I know Matt, one of our co-hosts, he also took um, a different route, not the direct undergrad to grad school route. So um, hearing you as now you're one of the instructors for that. I do have to ask in your phonetics class, um, is it video based or is it, mine was just, um, chat rooms so it was oh we had some videos and audio yeah and things to read through beforehand this was years ago too so the technology is better um but i struggled with phonetics a bit because okay i was reading it and having to transcribe you know go back to my book not hearing the sounds as much it is all yeah it's video based and i redid all my videos last summer which was a huge project so i got a green screen and did this whole thing and kind of put myself in on my powerpoints and i had i had some fun with it but it, it was a lot of a lot of work so it sounds like all of us are career changes which is is kind of fun mm-hmm. and now when i got the chance to do it it was actually a different program they allowed me to go to grad school it was the first year they tried this and there were five of us we could go to grad school for 3 years basically so we we were admitted to grad school at SDSU but then we had to take one year doing the prerequisites with the undergrads, but they got rid of that. So now we've got these leveling courses. Gotcha. I know there are a couple of programs across the country that have the combined like three-year program for non-traditional students as they call it. But, um, but yeah, I know for, for mine, it was, I had to get a certain amount of the leveling courses before I could apply. And then, yeah. And that's the, I, so I actually had coming in, with my different background, I had two masters coming in before this one. So this ended up being my third master's. I have one in Russian studies, which actually came up today. It's at my high school campus, believe it or not. And then I did one on uh, teaching English as a second language. So, so that's what, an education. I mean, the language piece is is super interesting to me. Your background, 26 years doing ESL. Um, yeah. But before that, what did you grow up speaking a second language? What what got you into foreign languages and what languages do you speak? Yeah. I mean, it started off really slow in a way because I had French in elementary school and then a little in high school, but I was really bad at it. And I don't count that as one of my languages. So somehow it didn't really gel. But then when I got to college and I started out at Berkeley and I ended up at UCLA, I uh, wanted to study abroad. And so I started German and I'm actually going out this summer for my 40th anniversary of my study abroad. It's going to be this summer. We're all getting together again. Wow. So that was in 1982, 83. I was in Germany. And that led me, I started studying Russian out there. That led to Russian. But along the way, I also met my wife and she is Hungarian. And so that was the third language, um, you know, after English. And I learned Hungarian. I, English, I lived German, there five years. Hungarian. Yeah, English, German, Russian, Hungarian. And then I lived in Hungary five years and married my wife. And then we moved to South America. So after that followed Spanish. We lived in Chile Chile for two years. And then Portuguese because we lived in Brazil for a year. And then we came back. Now, my son is bilingual. He's 14 years old and he is perfectly balanced in his two languages of uh, English and Hungarian. Mm-hmm. And then he's learning Spanish and some other languages. But yeah, we we love languages in our household. And my wife speaks five and I speak six. Wow. And then um, and you're in your home, do you speak English and Hungarian as a family? 
Yeah, so we do one parent, one language, and we had a very quick conversation about it when when my wife was pregnant. It was just, how are we going to do this? We knew we knew we wanted to do it, and it, I think it lasted just a minute. We just said, well, I guess we'll just each do our own language, and we knew, you know, we knew about bilingual education, so we knew that was a model. It worked really well for us because there was no translation, so we still do it. If I am our default language now is English, so if my wife and I are alone, we speak in English. But if my son walks into the room. Then my wife switches to Hungarian to me and my son, and I answer back in English. So we we answer in different languages. <laughs> so it's, it's your own combination of English and Hungarian. Yeah. So it's really funny because the neighbors, for example, if they ever overhear us, if we're outside or something, they just understand me and they, <laughs> they, don't, understand they don't understand what understand anyone's asking me. What... Yeah. And it's funny because I never even remember when I think about it later, I can't even remember what language my wife says stuff to me in because it just comes, it's either, I just, I just remember the message, but I don't remember usually whether it was English or Hungarian after we construct that. And now you did just mention, you said uh, bilingual language models or um, development. What, what can you describe to me a little bit oh. more what you mean by that? Yeah, well, I just mean, you know, a lot of my students, are, there are many, many, obviously many bilingual people in the United States, and many of them are sort of early sequential bilinguals where they have a language spoken in the home with mother and father or or, or whoever the parents are, are, are speaking or guardians are speaking in a particular language. And then when the child enters the school system, that's when the home, the other language comes into play. So that's a real common model. And then a lot of people do the one parent, one language, but they have to translate. So if, if, one spouse is not bilingual, then everything's got to be translated. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there are any studies that say, I mean, I would, I'm very, I think bilingualism can work any way you do it. So I don't think there's one way that's better. You just, people have to decide what works for their family. Yeah. I, um, my first job out of grad school, I worked for several years at a school for the deaf and, um, we had a lot of also Spanish speaking families. So we had high schoolers in the school for the deaf who were really trilingual because they had to be proficient in written English, right? Yeah. For reading and writing. But then they also knew a solid amount of Spanish to get by with their families. And then also American Sign Language that they used, if their families did or did not use it, used wow. it in the school setting, which was a unique you know, we'd have multiple interpreters with the ASL interpreter and the Spanish interpreter at an IEP meeting. But, yeah, and um, the Sp Spanish is the one, even though at home, that's Hungarian is the one that I hear all the time at work, it's Spanish because I work right at the border. Mm -hmm. And yeah, a lot of my area. job involves Sp Spanish bilingual, basically Spanish evals. I just got a couple today. We just started, we had a meeting today. We, we met with the parents and I signed up for an eval. So it's really common for me to do that in my district to support the other SLPs. What um what ages do you work with in the school? So I'm also I'm at a high school now, but I worked a decade at a middle. My my district is all secondary, so we're all we always work with the older kids. We sort of specialize in that. Okay. And, and again, we have so many English learners that it's a big issue because we have over and under identification of when a second language is involved. It's very common. It's much more common to have the unidentified or under identification, but we also get, you know, we get both, or, or I mean, the over is actually more common, I think, because you'll get a lot of kids who are in special ed. And then it turns out that they're actually really just working on their English. So we have to make sure to get those kids out. But it's the other one that, that I meant was less common is where occasionally I'll get called out for a student and they'll say, you know, they'll just want to kind of verify and we find out, wow, this student really needs a lot more special ed, but they're sitting in general ed because everyone just says, well, they haven't learned English yet, but they actually are special ed. 
Mm-hmm. So you have both so the over too. and the under yeah, yeah, yeah. identification. Do you get called in with the six languages that you speak? Uh, I know you said you do evals yeah. in Spanish and English. Do you ever get called in to do evals in those other languages if you have a student that pops Not up? much. I mean, that was the one I mentioned that just today when we yeah. were at the meeting, I heard, I heard one of our APs talking to the nurse, talking about a Russian student. I said, hey, I speak Russian if you need help with a parent or anything like that. But professionally, I've, I did use Russian with a Ukrainian client when I was in grad school, when I was in a, in acute care. And I did use Russian a lot in the hospital because people would come in who only spoke Russian for different types of swallowing stuff. So that came up there and then Spanish all the time and a little bit of Hungarian every once in a while, but usually I involve my wife in that because she's an SLP too. So oh, she's a non-native. I did not realize that you're both SLPs. Yeah. My wife is a non-native SLP and I've always been with a non-native accent because I know we're, we're going to get into accent today. And it's just so important because a big part of my really of my career has been really standing up for non-native speakers or making sure to advocate for them. And we really want to have as many non-native speakers as we can in the field. And so uh, who became an SLP first, you or your Oh, wife? yeah. Um, well, it's funny because a lot of times too, everybody, there's kind of a rumor that we met in grad school or something, but my wife and I met many, many years ago. We've been, actually, it was 32 years ago, but I went first and I think my wife was very skeptical at first because I had just completed my second MA and to turn around and say, well, I've got this third one that I think is going to be really good. <laughs> and she was very skeptical. But then after I started coming home and, and I showed her what I'd been working on, that's when she said, Hey, maybe I should do it too. She had initially thought about maybe audiology, but then she is more of a speech person. And that's where she ended up. Okay. And what setting is she working now? In what setting? Same one. So actually, uh, yeah, we work in the same district. We're just a couple of miles away from each other. She's at a high school too. Hey. And then I, I mean, just the combination of languages between the two of you are a huge asset, I'm sure too. Yeah. It's just, it's just fun. It's just fun. And, uh, it just leads to things. Every once in a while, we'll consult on something if there's a Hungarian involved. I got an email uh, just a couple of days ago from a, a a native speaker of Hungarian, 70 years old, who had been really embarrassed about not being able to trill her R her whole life in her native language. And she had gotten my contact information because ASHA allows you to list what languages you speak. So every once in a while, I get something like that. So I'm working with her now trying to figure out the best way to get her a little support at 70. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> now, yes. um, thinking about you and being the perpetual student that you are. Um, <laughs> so we, I let me make sure I get it right. Degrees in international relations and Russian. That's the first one. That's my first MA. Yeah. And then in education. Right. Education, which is teaching English as a second language. Okay. Teaching English as a second language and then speech language pathology. That's right. So what what made you turn to speech after being an expert in these other areas, kind of parallel fields to yeah. speech, but what, what directed you there? And that's the thing too, it's because I know your listeners are are interested in that field or this field, and it is the best one. It's just so great. And I, it was such a great choice because I think a lot of us who are interested in languages really need to find some way to apply it, to apply what we love about languages to helping people and earning a living too. So really both of those, this is the best field for that because we're able to work with clients and help them and use our language skills and our love of languages, but it's also rewarding too. It's, it's, uh, it's something that is going to be, it's going to create a lot of better outcomes for our clients. Mm-hmm. And so you worked as an ESL teacher? Yes, I did. I did. And I lived in a couple different countries doing ESL 
with a lot of different age groups. And then I was doing it in the evening at, at UCSD. And I was working during grad school. So I kept a couple of classes and I would, I would leave right away from my classes at grad school and drive over to UCSD and, and teach adults in the evening. Mm-hmm. And you said, what university was that? I'm sorry. Oh, that's UCSD, which is University of California at San Diego. Okay, at San Diego. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Now, they don't have a speech program or anything. And then what what really happened is that I was happy doing that. I love DSL. I always have. But it was 9-11. When that happened, it really had a big impact at first because our students were not coming. We were, we really were, these were programs through extended studies where students from other countries would come in and, and would study at UCSD. But when 9-11 happened, they stopped coming. And that's when I started thinking, well, I need something that's a little more secure. And somehow I found out about it. I think my wife came in and found something in Newsweek or some magazine like that, US News and World Reporter, that here's this job. And I didn't know anything about it. And then I just kind of got into it and it was great. I And one thing is funny, because I know we're not going to talk about this much, but I had no idea that it was mostly women. <laughs> I just had assumed it's like 50, 50. I didn't know. And then I showed up at the first day of orientation. I thought, wait, where are, what is this? This is interesting. So I and had you no were idea. probably you and maybe one other male. <laughs> yes. One, there was one yeah. other. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh goodness. Well, um, what advice or I guess, what would you recommend? A lot of our listeners are graduate students or some non-traditional students as it's called switching careers. Yeah. Um, what would you like them to know about making that transition into speech pathology? Yeah, I, lo- I love the career change students or the people who are interested in it. I think, I I do think if it is your passion, if you have those skills, you, you can find a way to make it work in most cases. But I, I have changed a little bit over the years because when I first got into teaching, I think I was much more really just sending out the message to everyone that if you want to do this, you can. But we know that's not really true because it is so competitive. But it's not as competitive as people may imagine, if you do have a good background, you're willing to put in the work and you have sort of that same, the same capabilities or or are able to handle some of the difficult academic subjects a little bit, you should be able to find your way into a program, but you have to be strategic and really take it seriously. That's for sure. Because I think sometimes people get into it, not knowing how hard or how competitive it's going to be. So you have to be ready to hit the ground running. And then be strategic about applying because my students are getting in, they're getting into programs. But a lot of times they look through the ASHA website very carefully and figure out a school that's going to be a match for whatever their academic record is. And if you're careful and you're strategic and you apply to a bunch of schools, you should be able to get in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and give yourself a broader scope of, of options. I know I applied to yeah. quite a few. When I that's was, the thing. When I was looking, um, which at least now I do know the the common application is is helpful for some of that from some of the grad students I've spoken to that said it was much more streamlined um, compared to a decade ago. Um, And I get nervous though, when I hear my students tell me, I'll ask them how many schools are you applying to? And they'll say three or something. And I think, okay, well, I would love to hear six to 12. Mm -hmm. I just recently now, I just started supervising my current first year grad students. and, And one of them is one of my former undergrads who I sort of convinced to apply because she was going to wait a year, and but she only applied to one school, which was SDSU. It's extremely competitive, but she got in. But I don't think that strategy is recommended. So usually you want to have a pretty wide <laughs> net. A, a little bit, you know, they, yeah. they call it your safety schools versus That's your it. reach schools um, of what you can what you can apply for. And Bob, so you came to speech pathology with a wealth of other experience. Uh, what did you start out in, in speech pathology? What setting? 
Well, when I started as a speech language pathologist, it was in the high school setting. So that's all I've ever done. Mm -hmm. But when I was in grad school, they did put me in the accent program right away because they knew that was an interest of mine. And I had a background with that. I think I really started getting involved in accent really when I was much younger and when I started learning languages. So I consider myself to have started as a client first, because in the broad sense of having phonological training in another language, I've had that in all the languages that I speak. And I've even had some in the much more narrow sense where I've hired somebody to work with me on the way that I speak the language. But so I think I started really as a client. And then when I was an ESL teacher, that became an area of specialization for me. So I got really interested in it. And I was teaching already classes on pronunciation and fluency. And then when I got to grad school, it was natural for the clinic director to say, well, well, you should go to the accent program. I mean, in a way, I think I did know more than my supervisor at the time. And, and she was very comfortable with that. She knew that I had more experience. And, and so it all it all worked out. I think that's the sign of a good SLP and a good mentor too, though. If, uh, if they're real, willing to say, yeah. hey, you have this strength and we're going to put you here. So, yeah. Um, so what, uh, what would you tell anybody who wants to learn more about accent modification, because I know you just said a grad program yeah. that had an accent program. And I don't think a lot of programs, graduate programs have that. Is that I think possibly because of location in California with multilingual speakers. But um, I know in my graduate program, we had several grad students as well who were um, not native English speakers or, and were becoming speech pathologists, just like your wife with a non-native English accent, right? And they actually took a mini one credit course. Okay. Um, they were given one by the university about learning the, um, it was really the Southeastern Ohio um, accent. And uh, because that was the population we were working with. And a lot of us wished that we could also take that because there are many native English speakers, not from that area of the States who also felt like they could benefit from some of that local knowledge, I guess. But um, what would you tell anybody interested who felt like they just touched on it in grad school and they want to learn more? Yeah, that's really common because it's not really typical to have these, these accent programs in graduate school. So I don't know how many there are, but it's not that many. And then people don't really know what to do because it's not really talked about much in most of the programs. So people have to figure it out on their own. There, there are a couple of good places to start. I would recommend there is a Facebook group called SLPs in Accent Modification. And that's a huge group. It's got about 3,500 members. And there are people on there who ask questions and they can connect and get you more information. And anyone, even if you're just a student in school right now, you can you can start in that as long as you're becoming an SLP. So that's a great place to get started. For SLPs who've done really more or, or they've pr been practicing as SLPs, there's also an organization called CoreSpan. And I used to be the president of that. Just I just, my term just ended. But that's a great place for professionals who have more experience to get together and, and really figure out how to do things. And they deal with other aspects of corporate speech as well. So any kind of communication training for people who are employed. So and then of course is corporate speech pathology. That's right. I, I should have spelled it out. It's the Corporate Speech Pathology Network, which is a wonderful organization founded in the 90s by Katie Schwartz. And it's, it's a great group of people. I, I've had a lot of fun being involved in that. And then I think there are a lot of books and resources. Many of them are free and places you can go on the internet. When I created my book, it really was designed to bridge that gap because I think SLPs, 
they have a lot of good knowledge and they have the skills and this is really their area of expertise in general. But a lot of times they need to bridge the gap a little bit in terms of how to explain English to other people or, or how to think some of the vowels or segmentals. I know we're going to get into that in the second half. But so that was the point of my book was to kind of bridge that gap there. But there are many other books out there and there are a lot of training programs that people can do. So there, there. if you want to get interested in this, there are a lot of great ways to do it. And people can reach out to me too and I can, I can get them started. And if somebody wants to reach out to you or look up your book, tell us the title of your book and the best yes. way to reach you. It's a, here's how to do accent modification. It was published by Plural Publishing, which is here in San Diego, wonderful publisher. And they're very involved in our field and support the field in so many ways and have so many wonderful titles. So that was, uh, that's um, the title of the book. And then you're going to put my email probably in the listener notes, right? But you can reach me at rmckinney at sdsu.edu. And uh, for those of you who would like to learn more next week on our second segment with Bob McKinney, we will also be discussing a brief intro um, summary of some important points about accent modification. So be sure to tune back in and listen to us. And again, this is Michelle Wintering, and I'm here with Bob McKinney from San Diego, the expert in accent modification, but also comes with a wealth of other experience from English as a second language and um, and speaks how many languages again? Six with English. Six with English. So uh, we will see you all next week. Welcome back to Speech Science episode 169. I'm Matt Hot, joined by Rachel Archambo and Michelle Wintering. What up, ladies? Howdy. I was really hoping you guys would say the exact same thing at the same time. I should one have said one of these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See? I've done howdy before, but not this time. I like throwing people off and just adding a howdy, and they're like, where are you from again? Florida? So I don't I don't want to beat a dead horse, but um, looking at this website about ages, and I was reading about it during the break, Maine doesn't start their special education until after the student turns five. Maine only worries about special education for 14 years. What is going on up there? So, right? <laughs> now, interesting, though, when you say starts their special education, is that yes. the year that they're required to, they have mandated school? Because Texas is the same way that there's no preschool or kindergarten really required, depending on age. So they so, say the child development service system is established from blah, 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 blah. Early intervention services from birth to age three are free. And then so uh, a from nice ages gap to until three, school they, age. from three to six who have a disability, mm -hmm. they need this receipt. Yeah. Yeah. Because Texas school is not mandatory until age six either. According to this website, IDEA online, which is not a real IDEA website, Texas, as they say, it's three to 21. So I just don't know how it works between all the states because, yeah. you know, you have the early intervention birth to three, which is in all states, but Side note, the we're mandated going through that age process. for school is different in every state. Some school have, some states have the free mandated preschool is open to everyone mm -hmm. and others don't have anything until kindergarten or first grade, depending the age of your kid. We're going through that process with Evelyn, my, my daughter, and we're looking at uh, keeping her in her school for uh, Ohio Valley Voices, which is really cool. The only other program that we know of is outside of Chicago, and it's really t getting kids to listen and speak and, and do that kind of stuff. And they were talking about how 
depending on where her little school friends live in the city and michelle we were just talking about that before the break depends on if the school district believes in what ovv does and is willing to send and pay for the student to attend ovv Mm -hmm. that was similar to working at the school for the deaf and the blind if their home district would pay for it they do two and a half hours of speech therapy a day Mm -hmm. i i don't know how they do that but as a speech therapist, I don't know how they do that. Because it's part of their curriculum. Well, versus... I get that, but I'm looking at it from my school point of view. Like, yeah, I yeah, would... yeah. But so we're going through that process. I empathize. empathize? Is that the right word? Yeah. Mm-hmm. With families going through that? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Something I don't empathize with. Is <laughs> this is our segment where every week or every time we're on the air, we look at what Asha does and we say... What up, up, Asha? That was almost in harmony. Almost. (laughs) We're trying, Matt. What is happening in Asha? So there is a discussing trauma-informed care with clients, patients, and students. It is a town hall on Zoom on February 23rd from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern. So... A bunch of you all have sent me screenshots of this and we're like, I'm so excited to watch and see you. And I was like, I'm not going to be there, Um, but it is going to be a panel. So uh, Dr. Carol Westby is going to be there. Um, There is a social worker, it looks like, um, three SLPs and uh, one of the SLPs, Jamie Van Echo, is the moderator of it. So I did register for it, even though I am not on the panel, which I I was about to say, where is Rachel Archambault? I know, I know, I know. I think they just knew I had so many requests coming in from other people that want me (laughs) to speak. I'm just too busy for Asha. No, (laughs) I do want you to know. Of course, we're glad there's trauma informed Mm -hmm. information being put out there. But I guess I just assumed I would see your name on the list. (laughs) I just need you to know, Rachel, that when I Google trauma informed care SLP, the number one return is using a trauma-informed lens as a as an SLP with Rachel from an interview you did with Jesse and Drinks.com. Oh, nope. Jesse Andrix. Jesse Andrix. Oh, Andrix, like, not Andrix. And Shrinks. I was like, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, Jesse. Um, yeah, I I the have SLP put... stress management podcast. What yes. up, Jesse? Yeah, I have put a lot of work over the last it's, Wait, so why is that the number one Google search and you are a host of this show? I don't know, but I advertise <laughs> all the time when I'm presenting and I'm, I... <laughs> Matt had a realization. Wait I know, I know. Why <laughs> am I not? No, you you host this show. You should be the number one. That We'll work on that. But Keep no, going. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to this this town hall because I, I don't, I want to know, I want to absor- absorb... Mm-hmm. All of the trauma-informed information that's out there. And I hope that they have really good stuff to say. And I also will be there to see if there's anything, you know, I don't agree with, with which I'd love to, you know, do stories about on my page. But um, they say that the learner will be able to identify news resources about trauma-informed care, analyze current needs of patients, uh, clients, and students served, formulate a plan to address the unique needs of clients, patients, and students, and decide next steps to address trauma-related issues and determine partners with whom they can collaborate. So, sounds good, 
and I'm looking forward to it. And then at the very bottom of this page, it says resource, trauma-informed care. When you click on that, that brings you to ASHA's trauma-informed care website. They have a whole page dedicated to it, and I am cited on that. So (laughs) they did include me somewhere. Aren't you doing a speech about it this summer? I am. I'm presenting at ASHA Connect in July, Long Beach, California. So I'm super excited. Ooh, you get to go to Long Beach? I do. I've never been to California, so I'm super excited. Are you going to... Like, I, I'm not trying to be funny, but it's I've always seen it in like every 80s movie. And I want to just go to the Long Beach outdoor gym and work out. Is that I, is that on Long Beach? There. Have yeah. you worked out there? I did not. I did not work out there. I think we took a picture by the, you know, the infamous workout area yeah. that is in so many movies and things. Oh, it's over summer. So I plan on making like a week of it that I'd like to go out there and and spend some time in the area. And I know Chapman University has asked me to present multiple times. I've done virtual sessions for them and it's right next door to where I'll be. So I'm hopeful that I get to see them in person. So that'll be cool. That's a neat connection to make too. Yep. Well, we're still proud of you, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you. And actually it is really good though that we get more people talking about trauma-informed care. Uh, I told you on last time episode that it kind of came up in a speech meeting, and then randomly it actually came up in an IEP meeting uh, from a parent that said we should be looking at things through like trauma-informed lessons. And I was like, huh, we're actually getting the lesson, not the lesson, we're getting, Mm -hmm. not us, but the word is getting out more. That's pretty awesome. That is great. And that's why I'm not, mad i want as many people talking about trauma-informed care with the correct information as possible and the more speech pathologists to know about it so i'm happy that asha is doing something about it and i i am looking forward to the um the presentation i've said it so many times with the podcast and the other podcasts that that we have helped grow that the rising tide raises all boats and the more people talking about trauma-informed care that means more people will learn about trauma-informed care I agree. And then they will look for you and then you'll be rich and then you'll forget about us. They can Google me for me and Jesse Andrix. <laughs> hey, uh, I had to put in trauma-informed care, Rachel speech science, and we were number six. Uh, uh, I got to so- figure out some. I'm doing something wrong on the Googles. You have to. Yeah. So, all right. As we wind up and the music plays underneath of our conversations, what are we doing this week that we are excited about that is not speech related? I will go first. Uh, in the next three weeks, my coaching season wraps up as we prep for postseason play. Uh, and we just found out some uber bad news because every year out of the 24 teams or 23 teams that make districts, we used to get five teams to state. And now uh, only four are going. So mm it has become a lot harder to go to state. So I am looking forward to these next three weeks to prep for that. What about y'all? Go Michelle. (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, We just planned a trip. It's not too far away, but we're going to go visit the space center uh, in Houston. Cool. That'll be fun. So I'm looking forward to a little overnight family, family trip. Wow. That'll be nice. Mm-hmm. Are you are you guys gonna stay near? Or are you guys gonna like get a hotel farther away and then travel? Oh wait, you don't have to go to Florida. I was thinking you have to go to Florida. 
No, Houston. 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 Yes. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> Short, couple hour drive. <laughs> okay. Good. Nice. Rachel. I was trying to think. Um, my friend, our one, a family friend that I've known my entire life, just had a baby, um, like less than two weeks ago. So um, I'm healthy. I'm good. I'm gonna go over and meet the baby. I think this weekend, and then I think I also have a date. Ooh. <laughs> yep. Like romantic date or like yes. with a friend no like a romantic <laughs> okay. date so i don't know if i discussed this on air but i had this discussion in school that the word date automatically implies romantic and then this kid aka my old intern says that the new way the 22 year olds use it is not for romance it could just mean that you're setting something up it's context i feel like it could mean either feel like if I told my wife I was having a date with someone at work I would then be single very quickly I think it's the way <laughs> that it's there's used. context that can get me not being single and that's no but you might say like let's pick a date or something mm -hmm. like that well, that yes, uh, like but... on the calendar but I'm not going to tell my wife that I have a date with someone or we'll say I... people say it's a date when you're confirming right. an event or know. a meetup what I'm saying is if okay Michelle if <laughs> I understand what you're I, saying, I get what you're saying. That I think the default is most likely a romantic context. But if you told, it's not always used that way. I don't know if we've used your husband's name on air or not. But if we, we if have, you, okay. If you told Ryan that you were going on a date with me, don't you think he would like raise an eyebrow? Um, he knows who you are, so I would probably be like, "Oh, we're having a date to talk about speech science podcast things." But, would but you, I wouldn't say it like yeah, that. Right, that would wouldn't. be odd, right? I don't know. I need to know but how I do, it is I do said. use the term friend date, though. Like, I'll say I have a friend date. Uh, yeah, I, I call it like a golf date. I use it more. I mean, that's in context with female to female friends for uh -huh. whatever reason. I don't have an explanation as to why I use it in that context, but I do. <laughs> we're nerds and we're arguing about the word date. Well, Rachel, I'm proud we are of you. Speech Go enjoy your date. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I will. The show. Thanks. <laughs> Don't let him listen to the show. Please bring him not... on the show. We can put him oh, in the Oh, man. Hot seat. <laughs> oh, man. We'll see. <laughs> oh, man. We haven't had the hot seat in a while where I just get the old man yell at a cloud for something. Yeah, but we get to put you on the hot seat, too. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Our intro music tonight was Please Listen Carefully by Jazar License Under an Attribution Share Like License. Our bump music was from John Deku, copyrighted John Deku. It's County Fair Rock. Find all of his music at soundcloud.com slash dirtdogmusic. And the Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod is our closing music tonight. Licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. In the immortal words of Janice Wright, always be a willow. The oak looks strong, but will crack under pressure. The willow will bend and return to form. For fellow Willows, Rachel and Michelle, I'm Matt. Until next time, so long, everybody. See ya. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. And rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.